Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada. Before we begin today, can I share with you that June is our fiscal year end? This month, we're striving to finish well and move into the next ministry year prepared to embrace new opportunity for Bible teaching. Being involved in a ministry whose primary goal is to effectively teach the Bible is a great privilege. And this mission continues only as those who share our heart for the gospel continue to offer their encouragement and support. Our fiscal year-end goal is to raise $300,000 by the end of June. Realizing this goal will allow us to continue to sustain and grow the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Would you call today with your gift? Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we begin a new and unique series called I've Got Questions. So let's turn in our Bibles to begin with to Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Asking the Right Questions. In the past, almost every Christian went through a catechism. Now, a catechism was an instruction or a basic method of discipling new or young believers. Now, this was true both in churches that only baptized adult believers as well as churches that baptized infants. And so, whether it was in preparation for baptism or in preparation for confirmation, Christians were catechized or they were instructed. Now, many catechisms consisted of a series of questions which were followed by memorized answers. And so, on a given day, the catechumens would stand before the church as the pastor would direct questions to them, and then they, from memory, would repeat the answer that had been provided. Now, what kinds of questions would they be asked? Well, one of the most famous statements of faith in history is called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's, it's so-called because it was drawn up in Westminster, England. It came from the Westminster Longer Confession, which was drawn up in 1646. It's still being used by Presbyterian churches today. And, and interestingly enough, for, for Baptists, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, it's the, the first ever Baptist Confession of Faith, it was drawn up in London in 1689. Well, it's almost a duplicate of the Westminster Confession with only a few changes, one of them dealing with the issue of baptism. So all of that being said, what was the Westminster Shorter Catechism? Well, the Shorter Catechism was used to train the young, and it consisted of a series of 107 questions. And and the first question, and probably the most famous, was this question. What is the chief end of man? I mean, using today's language, we might say, what's the purpose of life? And the answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And then came the second question. What rule has God given us to direct us as to how to glorify and enjoy him? And and then came the answer, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. So, translation, only the Bible can teach us to glorify God and enjoy him. Now, that's very similar to the very famous German Heidelberg Catechism, and it, it came out of the German Reformation. It begins by asking, what is your only comfort in life and death? And then the answer, 
that I with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sin, and so forth and on it goes. So you get the idea. Well, another example of that same method are the questions that were drawn up by Martin Luther himself, and it's meant to ready people in their preparation for communion. So question number one was, do you believe that you're a sinner? And the answer was, yes. And then question number two, how do you know this? And the answer, from the Ten Commandments, which I have not kept. (laughs) And then it keeps right on going, leading through to the atoning death of Christ and our necessary response of faith. Now, we live in a day wherein most evangelicals no longer use a memorized confession. And one of the reasons for that is that you might have memorized all the right answers, you see, but you still might not have been born again. Your heart might be unchanged by the Word of God. And so almost all evangelical churches that I know of today, when people want to be baptized, for instance, we ask them to give their personal testimony. And all that's good. But unfortunately, that represents simply a pendulum swing. In our concern that the baptismal candidate has a genuine conversion experience, which, by the way, is excellent and must not be abandoned, the necessity of asking them if their faith is founded on a biblical foundation, well, that's sometimes missing. And that can and does lead to a view of the faith, which is experiential only. In other words, we're in danger of raising up an experience-rich faith, that's good, but one that's empty of objective content, which is rooted in the Word of God. That's often reflected in the kind of questions that modern Christians ask. How can you say that Jesus is the only way to God? How can a God of love allow suffering in the world? What about those people who have a different view of gender and sexuality, but still say they love Jesus? So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that these questions that are being asked today are not important or that they shouldn't be addressed. But what's missing is, well, the first question of the Westminster Confession of Faith. What's the purpose of life? Or as the Germans put it, what is your only comfort in life and death? You see, having failed to establish the purpose of life, the reality of sin, the understanding of God's intent in creation, the reason why God would consider us as his enemies, and how the cross brings peace where there was not any, that is, without a foundation being laid, the reason that we flounder about is that we're trying to build a foundation on the sinking sand of human experience alone. What remains even sadder is that a generation of Christians have been raised on a how-to approach to the Christian faith. What I mean is the only sermons that they've heard are sermons on everything from, you know, well, leadership principles from Scripture to how to have courage in the face of personal disappointments to how to foster a healthy view of self to to how to have a great marriage to how to honor your mom and your dad to how to discover your spiritual gifts and find your unique calling in life and on and on go the topics. And it soon becomes apparent that all that so many have learned is how the faith helps them. And what they're lacking is an exalted view of God and of truth and of discovering that all things exist for him. But again, I'm talking about the pendulum. Do you see what I mean? When we stress truth at the expense of experience, we stress knowledge. 
And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 9, knowledge puffs up. Indeed, it does. You know, I've been in doctrinally rich Christian settings, and as lovely as that feels, what can be missing is love and care for the poor and evangelism and listening to the heart cry of those who are hurting. But again, I'm talking about the pendulum. It's easy to live on experience, well, until we don't. So we testify to miracles and talk about God's power and proclaim that every knee will bow. And then when cancer comes or when the culture in which we live demands we give answers to their very perceptive questions, we've never been prepared to answer and we end up confused and we wonder if there was anything there to our faith in the first place. Don't you see, we're talking about the pendulum and a sure conviction that we don't have to choose one to the exclusion of the other. We really can be trained to ask and answer the right questions, even while we enter deeply into what Paul spoke of in in Philippians 3, verse 10, that I might know him. Indeed, the experience of Christ and the doctrines of Christ, well, you don't have to choose one or the other. Instead, we should argue that it's impossible to have one without the other. You know, during this week, I want to sample a series of nine questions, and when you hear them, you'll no doubt be saying, well, I don't think these questions look like the catechism questions at all. Well, here are the nine. Number one, why can't God be satisfied if we're just happy? Number two, shouldn't everyone have the right to choose life and death? Number three, Is Jesus the only way to heaven? Number four, is the Bible really the only holy book around? Number five, how can a God of love send people to hell? Number six, how can a God of love allow so much suffering in the world? Number seven, how can I know with certainty that I'm saved? Number eight, how important is gender and sexuality? And number nine, what is heaven that I should desire it? Now, if you've been paying attention, you might have noticed that these are, in some form or other, the real questions that people are asking today. And and when we start with the questions we have without a proper foundation upon which to ask them, well, we often end up with nothing more than more questions. But if we engage the real questions people have and use them to point to the more significant questions God is training us to ask, well, we're going to come to a foundation for truth in life. You see, the foundational questions are, what's the Bible? What's the nature of the Trinity? What are the attributes of God? What's the nature of the incarnation? The atoning work of Christ, justification by faith, the providence of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, the reality of angels and of demons, the life of sanctification and holiness, the doctrine of last things. You see, each of these questions is a building block which builds a house for us, a house that stands firm in the storm. See, once we answer the foundational questions, well, we can answer the others. But I'm going to do it the other way around. I'm going to ask our questions and then use that as a bridge that leads back to the foundational questions. When we come back, I will answer the first. Why can't God just be satisfied when people are happy and fulfilled? Once in a while, we're overwhelmed by the generosity of those who share our heart for Bible teaching and sharing the good news. This is one of those times. Just recently, we received a pledge from a group of ministry friends 
committed to matching dollar for dollar your donations up to $75,000. I can't express enough appreciation for the potential impact of this pledge for the ministry. So can I ask you to thoughtfully consider offering a financial gift today? Your gift will then be matched by the $75,000 pledge that's been made. Now that's a great ministry investment. 50 becomes 100, 500 becomes 1,000, 1,000 becomes 2,000, you get the idea. Join us in making this match pledge of $75,000 become $150,000 in support of the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Call us with your gift today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. going to start with a question of why can't God just be satisfied when people are happy and fulfilled? You know, years ago while teaching at a Bible college, I got that very same question. We've been talking about the two natures of Christ, that he's both fully human and fully divine. I had noted in the class that the historic battle with a heresy called Arianism and the drama that had once consumed the early church was a battle for the very heart of the gospel itself. I had then noted contemporary examples that showed that the spirit of Arianism continues to linger on, even though it has been to the most part defeated. And that's when the response came. So what, said my student? What if people believe differently? Why can't we just let them do that? Doesn't God just want us to be happy and fulfilled regardless of what we believe? Well, that question really isn't that much different from the very first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man, asked the old catechism. What's the purpose of life? What my student didn't know is that she had already decided on that question in advance. You see, her answer was, the purpose in life is personal satisfaction, a satisfaction that is sovereignly determined by each individual person for herself or for himself. Whatever pleases you, well, that's your purpose in life. Now then, having already decided on that answer to the meaning of life, she just couldn't make sense of the Christian faith. Why were people battling for a definition of the person of Jesus? Why can't we let everyone just answer the question for himself or herself as as long as the answer fits in with their own personal peace and happiness? See, I hope you see how significant the question is. What is the chief end of man? What's the purpose of my life? Isaiah chapter 43 is a marvelous chapter in the Bible. It's a chapter in celebration of the Lord as Israel's only Savior. Listen to verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And then the passage goes on to speak about how God will ransom Israel from the land of their enemies and how he will call his sons and his daughters from afar. And then Isaiah 43 verse 7 adds these very wonderful words. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Two very important things strike us about that passage. The first and perhaps most obvious feature is that we are the creation of God. He has fashioned and made us. I'm I'm reminded here of Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us 
and we are his. That is, we did not create ourselves. We were created by another, by the Lord. And because we are made by him, we are also made with a purpose. There's a purpose that God made us for. That's why we're his. You know, a little example is in order. Let's assume you have a Phillips screwdriver and you're trying to use it for a hammer. It works somewhat, but very badly. That's not what it was made for. But the example I've given falls far short. You know, in this case, the one using the screwdriver is the one who has made it for himself for his purposes, that is the creator. Ah, well, what has God created us for? And the answer is, we were made for his glory. Now, when we hear that, chances are we've heard it before, and chances are also we've never thought the matter through well enough. Look at it this way. Imagine a university prof training the next generation of physicists. You're engaged in a conversation with that very same prof, and you want to know from him how he got into his field and and what motivates him to keep going. And then he tells you, well, I'm training students for my glory so that my name and my reputation and my greatness would be spread abroad. Now, your first reaction might be, well, that just sounds a bit egotistical. And you might be turned off by such a narcissistic approach to a motivation of living. But if you thought about it, you might also ask, well, why is it wrong for someone to act for their own glory? And the answer would probably be that it lacks humility. See, this university professor doesn't seem to know that he should share his glory, well, with his students. He should learn that there are others who should also receive praise. Perhaps in this case, the praise should go to some of the people who actually trained that prof and some of the other scientists in history. See, this professor should acknowledge that he's standing on the shoulders of giants who made a way for him. Stop concentrating on your glory and give glory to those who made you. Ah, but there's the difference between God and us. In Isaiah 43, verse 10, God says, Before me no God was formed, neither will there be one after me. And Isaiah 46, verse 5, records God as saying, To whom will you liken me and make me equal, and compare me that we may be alike? And then several verses later, verse 9, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And then Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. Well, that's because God has no equals. He's the very definition of the word glory. To boast in the presence of God is like an ant boasting of his greatness while standing before the Grand Canyon. So if the purpose for our creation is as an expression of the glory of the one who created us, then already the minute you think about it, well, we come to a very important conclusion. We were created for God and not for ourselves. Now, for just a moment, let me get back to my student, the one who couldn't understand why God couldn't just be satisfied when we find meaning and happiness as we determine those things. See, in response, we should say that our creator, the one who gets the last word, well, he didn't create us for ourselves. He created us for himself. We are his work, not our own. We exist to showcase or highlight his greatness, not our own. That one statement, created for the glory of God, that that should be earth-shattering. You know, the Apostle Paul caught on to that when he wrote 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now here I make an important observation. 
what if we, the creation, decide to rebel? We're not going to live for his glory. We're going to live for our own. Does that action harm God? And the answer is no. Numerous scripture passages indicate that God does not need us. Psalm 50 verse 12 has God saying, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. Acts 17 verse 25 says that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. No, no. Our purpose in life is not to meet some unmet need in God. God has no needs. He's the altogether happy and satisfied being. He is the glorious God for eternal ages before he made us. No, no. That's not what it means to exist for his glory. See, we exist for his glory in the sense that we are the externalization of the glory of God. God made us as a representation of just how great he is. That's our purpose. That's why we exist. I mean, don't you see how radical that is? And so then, what is our purpose? Well, let's allow the the Psalms to express it. Psalm 73, 25 to 26, Asaph says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Or as one of the sons of Korah said in in Psalm 84, 1 and 2, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Then verse 10 says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Here's what we were made for. We were made to be satisfied in God. We were made to delight in God. We were made to put all things as an expression of the pleasure that we find in God. That's our very purpose for being. If we find ultimate pleasure in anything other than God, we're like a Phillips screwdriver being used as a hammer. We weren't made for that. Our Creator made us for Himself. And by the way, that's why our lives have significance. We were made for Him who is ultimate. We were not made for ourselves. And that brings me back to my student. I was teaching my class about the ancient Arian heresy, a heresy that denied that Jesus was one with the Father. This denial is a denial of both the Father and the Son. And and the reason the denial is so significant is that if we conceive of God other than he is, well, we're really betraying that we're not satisfied in the God who actually exists. Isn't it enough that people simply love each other? No, it isn't enough. That would be like saying we were made for ourselves, but we weren't. We were made for God. That's why it's so important to ask and answer the right questions. John, I'm intrigued because I think more than perhaps any time in history, we think that God should be happy when we're happy. In fact, everybody should be happy when we're happy. It's all about us. Yeah, and you know, and I recognize this culture we live in. Every culture, no matter where Christians live, have very anti-Christian elements. And our task is to learn to think Christianly and to begin to, to just have this worldview within ourselves that starts with what God is saying. This is especially pronounced in our world today because so many of us have not known what it means when we say that we were made for God. Lacking that, we lack the answer to all other questions. Thanks so much, John, and join us again as we continue our series, I've Got Questions, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible.